Hey church family, so good to be with you again today. Hope you're all doing well and staying safe and staying healthy and certainly we're glad that you've chosen to join us to worship together uh, today. I heard a story about a, a guy who was standing outside the pearly gates and an angel was interviewing him because of course that's how it works before you enter into heaven. But uh, the angel asked him, he said, hey, you know, can you think of a time in your life, can you give me an example of a time in your life where you did something for someone else that was particularly courageous. And the guy said, well, yeah, I can, I can think of one time I was traveling out west and I came across this gang of macho bikers and they were threatening this young woman. And, and so I, I, I tried to tell them to, to leave her alone, but, but they wouldn't listen to me. And so I, I you know, looked at the biggest, baddest biker of the bunch and I walked over and I kicked over his bike. And I told him, you need to leave her alone or you're going to answer to me. And when he stepped towards me, I promptly kicked him in the shin. And the angel said, well, that's, that's pretty impressive. That took a lot of courage. When did this happen? And the guy said, oh, about five minutes ago. Probably wasn't the smartest thing in the world to do, but I, I've been thinking about people who take risks, people who do courageous things in the face of incredible opposition, particularly in light of where we're going in our story uh, in our time in Acts this, this morning today. We are in the midst of a series called Going Viral in which we're journeying through the book of Acts and examining what it looks like when the message of Jesus goes viral. And today we're going to be in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4 and we're going to look at a, really an incredible story of what it looks like when someone faces opposition to following Jesus and also to sharing the message of Jesus. So let's dive right in. Acts chapter 3, uh, picking up in verse 1. Luke writes, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, Look at us. So the man gave him his attention expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk, and then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. It's a pretty neat story and there's a whole lot involved in it and still more to come, which we'll get to in just a second. But, but I want you to notice, just a little side note here, I want you to notice that the story begins with Peter and John going to the temple to pray at the time of prayer. Even though they experienced incredible revival and they, they, they had these incredible spirit-filled experiences, they still had a regular discipline of prayer in their life. We talked about this a little bit last week, how the early church was devoted to prayer. And that's no different for Peter and John. They're going to the temple to pray. And on their way to the temple to pray, they see this, this man. They notice this man sitting outside the, the temple gate. And did you catch the, note, the name of the, the gate of the temple? called beautiful temple gate is called beautiful and he's just outside of this gate just outside 
of beautiful. Kind of a, a fitting metaphor when you think about it. After all, he's been lame his entire life, never been able to walk, and here he is just outside of the temple gate called Beautiful, begging for money. And he's so accustomed to begging that, that he can't even look Peter and John in the eye. He, Peter and John look at him, but, but he's not looking at them, because when you're begging, you're in shame, right? And so Peter and John, they look at him, and they have to tell him to look at them. They say, look at us, and, and he looks at them expecting something, anything they can give him. But they don't have silver or gold to give him, but instead they give him something else. And in a moment, he goes from a life of being lame to standing up on his feet for the first time in his entire life. He's not even asking for it, and yet he gets it. He gets healed. And just like that, he goes from sitting outside the temple gate called Beautiful to walking and jumping and praising God. And catch this, he's walking and jumping and praising God inside the temple gate called Beautiful. A guy that most people had always seen as sitting just outside the gate Beautiful is now inside the gate Beautiful, walking and jumping and praising God. And this is such a beautiful picture, pun intended, of what Jesus does. He takes us outside, from outside the gate called Beautiful to inside. And the man is, is walking and jumping and praising God. But notice that he's also holding on to Peter and John. I don't know exactly how this would have looked, but, but he's holding on to them. And I don't think it's because he's there, you're there, some kind of crutch, but I think probably a lot of it has to do with they're the delivery vessels through which his healing happened. And, and if you had been healed in such a dramatic way by someone you probably want to, would want to go and hang out and, and hang on to them just a little bit too. But Peter wanted to make sure that everyone knew that he isn't the one guy or the one this guy should be hanging on to. That's Jesus. So let's read on, continuing in verse 12. When Peter saw this, the crowd gathering around them, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed, this one gets me, you killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. Continuing in, in verse 17, Peter says, Now, fellow Israelites, I know you, that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And so while it is certainly an incredible sight to see this man walking and jumping and praising God, Peter knows that ultimately this is his opportunity to be a witness regarding Jesus. That this is, this is a door. What's going on here is a door is being opened for him to testify about Jesus. And so interestingly, Peter preaches basically the same sermon that he preached just a couple of chapters or last chapter, one chapter earlier in Acts chapter 2 when 3,000 people respond and are baptized uh, to the message of Jesus. I, I guess stick with what works, right? But, but he wants them to know something in particular in this message 
that Jesus is more than just about one lame guy being healed. Jesus is also about the healing of everyone's souls. And so again, Peter begins to testify about this Jesus, that he's the Messiah that they've been waiting on, that they've been looking for. And he says, but here's what you did to him. You crucified him. You crucified the author of life. But then he turns a corner and he says, look, though, your story doesn't have to end there. And he calls for them to repent, to have a change of heart and mind about this Jesus and and to turn to God so that, as Peter says, your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. That, That word for wiped out is also the Greek word for obliterate. It's an awesome picture, I think, especially as a guy that that, that, you know, he says, repent. Have, your, have a change of heart and mind about this Jesus, this one who you previously didn't believe was, was the Messiah. Confess him, repent, and, and acknowledge that he is the Messiah, the, the chosen one of God, and have your sins obliterated. By the way, this is the language where we get the idea of, of having a clean slate, that faith in Jesus brings a clean slate with God. And what Jesus does with that lame man He wants to do for every soul. He wants to make us brand new. You see, what's going on here is is not just one man's physical healing, but it's about a door being opened for Peter to share the testimony about what Jesus wants to do to bring healing spiritually for everyone. And so Peter preaches this message, and then watch what happens next in Acts chapter 4. The the priest and the captain of the guard and, and the other religious leaders, they show up because Peter's preaching in the temple now. And the religious leaders aren't happy about it because he's preaching about Jesus. And they're like, I thought we got rid of this Jesus guy. Now he just, he keeps coming back up. And so they come and they confront Peter and John in the temple courts and they seize them. They actually throw them in jail overnight, but it's too late. Because I love the simple reference in in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, that says, But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Because listen, you you can imprison the witness but you can't imprison the testimony. You can chain people, but you can't chain the message. So watch what happens next. Picking up in in verse 5 of chapter 4. The next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. So this is a big meeting. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, remember his name, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them to question them, By what power or what name did you do this? Notice they're not arguing over whether or not this guy has been healed. They they can't argue that. It's very obvious that this guy has been healed. You you can't argue a changed life. That's that's just the way it is, right? You, You can't deny a changed life. But what they want to know is what business, Peter and John, what business do you have doing this? Now just think about this. Just paint the picture here. Peter and John are standing before the same religious leaders who crucified Jesus just 50 to 60 days earlier. This is not years after Jesus has been crucified. This is just a couple of months. And this is happening in the same city that Jesus was crucified. And so same city, same religious leaders who crucified him, and it's just a couple months after they crucified him. And one of the leaders that Peter and John are standing before is a guy by the name of Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas knows Peter, and Peter knows Caiaphas. Do you remember what happened in Gethsemane when Jesus was being arrested? 
Uh, Peter takes out his sword, if you remember, and he goes to chop some guy's ear off. The guy apparently ducks, and Peter still catches him and slices off his ear. Do you remember whose name that the guy is that got his ear chopped off? His name was Malchus, who just so happens to be the servant of Caiaphas. And so Peter is standing before the same guy whose servant's ear he had cut off just a couple of months earlier. That's the context of this. And so Peter is standing before him, but also while Peter was the one who chopped the guy's ear off, this is also the same Peter who when they went to arrest Jesus, Peter deserted him and he fled. And then later that night when Jesus was on trial, a servant girl comes up to Peter and she's like, don't I know you? You look familiar. Don't you hang out with that Jesus guy too? And Peter's like, no, I have no idea who he is. And he denies Jesus. And so this is the same Peter who deserted Jesus, who denied even knowing Jesus, who wouldn't even own up to knowing Jesus to a teenage girl. This is Peter. And this Peter, watch what he does when he's asked the question by the high priest, by what power or what name did you do this? Here's what Peter does, verse eight. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, hang on to that, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Again, this is Peter saying this. The same Peter who deserted and denied Jesus, knowing Jesus three times, just 60 days earlier. Look at the next verse. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, I love this, realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, that they were just guys. They were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Why was Peter so different? Two things. He was filled with the Spirit, and he'd been with a guy who'd been raised from the dead for 40 days. And this time, Peter didn't flee. He stood up. This time, Peter didn't deny Jesus. He proclaimed him. Peter had been lame himself, lame of courage, but not anymore. Let's read on, verse 14. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Don't you just know (laughs) they hated that? So they ordered them to withdraw, Peter and John, to withdraw from the Sanhedrin Sanhedrin, and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. You can't deny a changed life. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, and I love this, which which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. I don't know about you, but I'm not always there. But I want to get there. That's so powerful and convicting to me. We cannot help it. So often, I, if I'm honest, I can help it. But they can't help but speak about what they've seen and heard. Verse 21. 
After further threats, because they're not done threatening them, after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what, that, for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old, meaning there was a whole generation of people who knew what this guy used to be and who know what he is now, that he's healed. And the religious leaders, are, they're stuck because it's difficult to argue with a changed life that everyone can see. And, and so they threaten Peter and John, and then they turn them loose. So what do Peter and John do next? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Several things stand out to me here. One of which is that Peter and John knew they needed the larger community of believers around them. Listen to me, you can't stand strong alone forever. You can't stand strong alone forever. None of us stands alone very long. That's why we need each other. We need to lean on each other and lean on the body of believers, the church, because you can't stand strong alone Forever. The second thing that stands out is the moment that they reported this to the church, Peter and John reported this to the church, what does the church do? Does the church whine and complain and say, woe is me? Does the church shrink back? No. What does the church do? The church prays. That was their first response. They had grown enough in their relationship with Jesus to know that prayer is the first and greatest response to any challenge at hand. Let me tell you something. There is more to do beyond prayer, but prayer is the best place to start. There's more to do beyond prayer, but there is no better place to start than prayer. Let me tell you something else. When you're facing challenges and adversity, if the people that you turn to don't help you turn those challenges and adversities over to God, then they're not a, a support group. They're a collapse group. If the people that you're going to for advice and wisdom don't help you to turn over what you're dealing with and what you're facing and challenges and adversity that are in front of you and to turn those things over to God, then in the end, those things are only going to collapse around you. That's not, a, that's not a support group. That's a collapse group. And the church knows enough that when Peter and John come and tell them the situation, the first thing they do is they pray. I'm reminded of what William Newell said centuries ago, the saint who advances on his knees never retreats. And these believers in Jerusalem, they didn't retreat. They prayed. By the way, did you notice in their prayers that they never asked God to change their circumstances? Now, I'm not saying, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's a bad thing or it's wrong for us to ask for God to change our circumstances. Certainly God invites us to ask for those things. He invites us to bring all of those things, all of our cares and worries and concerns 
to him. And sometimes God changes them and sometimes that he doesn't. But the point is, that's not what they pray for here. Instead, they pray that God, in the midst of their circumstances, would, to, would do two things. One, that he would give them boldness to declare the word. And two, that he would come alongside of them and work alongside of them, doing the miraculous things that only he can do. They don't ask God to change their circumstances. They ask God to change them. Lord, give us boldness and come alongside and continue to do your good work. And God responds by shaking the entire place where they're meeting, filling them with their Holy Spirit, with his Holy Spirit. And they respond by going out and proclaiming the word of God boldly. So let me close by giving you four takeaways from this story today when it comes to going viral with the message of Jesus Christ. And the first is this, going viral can happen through a simple act of compassion. This whole story, all these believers coming to believe starts with a simple act of compassion by Peter and John seeing this lame man and then reaching out to him. Seeing him right there on the outside of that gate called Beautiful and, and reaching out. They don't just keep walking, they stop and they reach out. That's how this whole thing starts. Never underestimate the power that you and I can have in someone's life simply by taking the time to reach out to them even in the simplest of ways. All it takes is one simple act of compassion in your school, in your job, in your office, in your neighborhood. One simple act. And you never know how the message of Jesus Christ might spread as a result. Secondly, going viral can also happen through the testimony of one changed life. This whole thing gets ignited through one man being healed. He was known to be one way for so long, and, and now he's changed. He's new. He's walking and jumping and praising God, and this one changed life prompted a crowd to gather around them, and it opened a door for Peter to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and for the whole thing to go viral. And a number of believers put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It grew from 3,000 to 5,000. And it all begins through the testimony of one changed life. Never underestimate the power of one changed life to make this whole thing go viral. Third, going viral happens through our lives beyond church walls. Did you notice that this healing happens outside the temple courts? Just outside the gate, beautiful. Just outside the temple courts. By the way, in Acts chapter 2, when 3,000 people respond to Peter's message and are baptized, that also happens outside the temple. Most moves of God in Acts happen outside of the temple, and then their testimony gets carried inside the temple. You know, one of the hardest things about these circumstances that we've been in for the last couple of months is not being able to meet together as a church body. I mean, it's such an important part of our life together as a church. But maybe in some ways, this has also been a good thing. And it's been a struggle. I, don't get me wrong. It's been hard. And, and, and certainly, I, I, can't, I can't wait to the day when we get to meet together and, and worship together as a, as a full church body. But maybe this is also reminding us that the church isn't about these four walls. The church is the people. We don't go to church. We're called to be 
the church. And so much of what we're called to be as the church happens outside of these four walls, where we're out in people's lives and in the community, loving people, serving people, uh, sharing with people, sharing ultimately the good news of Jesus Christ with people. And look, that stuff happens outside church walls much more than it happens inside church walls. We don't need a church building to do that. We need the church to do that. But if that's going to happen, then the last takeaway is important. Going viral happens through cowardice being transformed into courage. You see, that man outside the temple gate wasn't the only one transformed by Jesus. Peter was too. He went from being characterized by cowardice, where he deserted Jesus, denied even knowing Jesus, to a life and a testimony marked by incredible displays of courage. And here's the even cooler part. I, I just It's so easy to overlook this, but I think this is so cool. It happened in the same city. The same city where he deserted Jesus, where he denied Jesus, is the same city where he stood for Jesus. And that's so encouraging to me, and I hope it's encouraging to you, because those same places where maybe you've failed Jesus in the past, can be the same places that you stand for him now and in the future. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, or fearfulness, or cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and love and of self-discipline. Let me tell you what, if you're dealing with a spirit of cowardice, you didn't get it from God. You, you got it from somewhere, somewhere else. You didn't get it from God. But the good news is that God is in both the emptying business and the filling business. He's in the business of emptying us of those spirits of timidity and fear and cowardice, and he's in the business of filling us with his spirit so that we can be filled with power and love and self-discipline. Because when it comes to being his witnesses and going viral with the message of Jesus Christ, he's called us to be the bold and the courageous. Let's pray. Father God, there's so many times in our lives where we are tempted to shrink back, where we are tempted to be timid and fearful when it comes to sharing and proclaiming what you've done for us. And there's a myriad of reasons for that. But Father, I pray that you will empty us of those spirits and that you will fill us with your spirit so that we may boldly proclaim what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. Father, I look at the example of Peter and it's such an encouraging example to me, and sometimes it's easy to get on to Peter for those times that he failed, but, but Father, when he succeeded through your, through your spirit and your power, it was incredible. And you desire to do the same things through us that you did through him. The same thing that you did through that lame man, you desire to do through us as well, to make us new. And I know, Father, there are some who are listening who don't know the, the awesome power of the newness and the new life that you desire to bring. And for those, Father, who have never given their lives to you, I pray that you will convict their hearts today to make that decision, to give their lives to you. And for those of us who have, convict us to share it. Convict us to share the good news of what you've done for us with others. To be bold and courageous in proclaiming what your son has done for us with the world around us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
What do you think is the most impressive monument in Washington, D.C.? You know, our forefathers knew that people quickly forget, so they erected numerous monuments around our capital and statues to remind us of the price that was paid by those who came before us. Which one is the most impressive to you? Maybe it's the, the Washington Monument that stands so tall, or stately Jefferson or Lincoln Monuments. There are numerous shrines in, in Washington to remind us of significant events, the World War II Memorial, Korean War Memorial, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. To me, one of the ones that stands out above the rest, and I do have a little bit of sentimental value in regard to that, but the most impressive and the most effective is the Vietnam War Memorial. It's not necessarily the most impressive in size or architecture, it's just a wall. But written on the, the wall are the names of over 58,000 individuals who sacrificed their lives for our country. Vietnam Wall is the most impressive because you don't just see it, you can actually walk up to it and, and touch it. People will come and they'll search and search and search and, and find the name of, of a relative or neighbor or friend or brother in arms. And they touch it lightly with their fingers and they maybe brush away a tear. Many of them will take a piece of paper and, and a pencil and kind of sketch over and trace over the name of, of that loved one. And they walk away wiping their nose and their eyes and shaking their head. They remember that's the intent of a memorial, to assure that we remember and we appreciate those that have gone before and the actions that they did for us. The most impressive memorial is one that accomplishes that purpose. And I would suggest to you that the most profound and impressive memorial of all is what we're about to share in together, the memorial of the Lord's Supper, the memorial of communion. Our Lord and our Savior knew that we are prone, just as much as our forefathers knew, that we are prone to forget. And so on the night before he gave his life, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he took a cup and he said to his followers, this is my body, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Communion was established so that we would never forget what he did for us. And when you and I take in, in communion, when we share in that and partake in that, when you eat this bread and you, you drink this cup, you draw near to the cross. And if you look closely, you'll see your name written on that cross. Not that you died there, but that he did for you. Let's give thanks for the bread. Father, we thank you for this time that we get to share and remember. Sometimes it's so easy in the midst of the hustle and bustle, and I know our schedules have changed through all of this, but we still find ways to be busy, find ways to distract ourselves from coming together on what's most important. And so I'm thankful for this time that we get to share together, commune together, and partake in the bread and the juice to remember what your son did for us. And as we remember his body, we thank you for the gift that he gave us the gift of his life. Not while we were good, not while we were worth something as far as righteousness is concerned, 
but we were worth everything to you and to him. Thank you for the gift that he gave us in his life on the cross. And as we share in this bread, help us to remember that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's give thanks for the juice. Father, we also thank you for this juice, which, re which represents your son's blood that was shed for us. The, sh the shedding of his blood that flowed from Calvary and that washes over us. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of how much you love us. Thank you for that gift that wipes us white as snow. As we talked about this morning, I love that image that, that wipes out our sins, that obliterates our sins. Father, that's what you did to our sins. You obliterated them. And not only that, but you obliterated the power that sin has over us. Thank you for that gift, that promise of life here and now and life eternal through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Let's close our time in prayer. Father, just thank you for another day, another time when we can come together and worship you. But Father, we know that our worship of you is so much more than just a, a few moments on a Sunday. And it goes beyond church walls. It goes beyond the time frame of a Sunday, a day, a few moments. Father, may it flow into everything, every word we say, every action we take, every person we come in contact with. May they all be manifestations of our worship and our devotion and our commitment to you. And Father, Father as I think about what we talked about today and just the sharing of the message of what you've given us. Father, help us to be bold. Help us to not shrink back. And I know there's so many voices in our country and in our world and even in our own heads that call us to shrink back in fear and timidity and cowardice. But Father, I pray that you fill us with a spirit that overwhelms all of those things with your spirit that gives us power, love, self-discipline, that gives us boldness to proclaim that gives us courage to proclaim the good news of what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you have a blessed day.